In Genesis 31, we see a culmination of a conflict that had been basically ongoing for about 20 years, on and off. Surely there were periods of relative peace, but basically Laban's relationship with Jacob and Jacob's relationship with Laban was strained, more or less the whole time. Laban didn't really treat Jacob good at any point. And we see that Jacob served Laban with all his strength, as he said in Genesis 31 and verse 6. He worked hard caring for Laban's flock, as we looked at even last week. At the end of chapter 31, Jacob berates Laban and says, These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, I've not eaten the rams of your flocks, what was torn by wild beasts I didn't bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself, from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night, there I was by the heat, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and sleep fled from my eyes, and all this time that Laban, pardon me, that Jacob is serving Laban so faithfully, Laban mistreats Jacob, says he changed Jacob's wages ten times, and presumably this is not ten raises, otherwise Jacob wouldn't have been upset about it. There is a real disregard for Jacob's welfare that is manifest on Laban's part. In fact, it's so bad that even when Jacob speaks to Laban's own daughters, about his intention to leave. Rachel and Leah say in Genesis 31 and verse 14, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? This is the portrait that we get of Laban. What a guy. He doesn't even care for his own daughters. We see even when Jacob wants to go home, we saw this last week, he wants to go home to his own country, but Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. So in other words, he's not like, yeah, go ahead and do do what you got to do for your own family. Laban's attitude is just, how can I keep you here because God's blessing me because of you? So this is the kind of guy that Laban is. And there's obviously a strained relationship here between Jacob and his father-in-law. There's a conflict How do you tend to react in conflict? Do you tend to run away from conflict? Do you tend to avoid it? How should the truth that God is with you for your good affect the way that you react in conflict? This is going to be the theme of our message this evening as we see how Jacob responded to this particular conflict and as we draw out of it some lessons for how we should Engage in conflict. First thing we need to see is that God was with Jacob in the matter of his leaving and in the matter of Laban's pursuit of him. God was with Jacob the whole time and with him for his good, not just with him in his omnipresence, the way that God is with even uh, criminal 
organizations, criminal gangs in their deliberations and in their private meetings. God is with them in the sense that He's omnipresent. But He's not with them for their good or with them in a particular benevolence. God is with Jacob, however, here in this text, in a benevolent way. Not simply by virtue of His omnipresence, but God is with Jacob, caring for him. This whole time, in this whole matter, in this conflict, in Jacob's leaving, in Laban's pursuing, God is with Jacob. We need to recall again the promise that God had made 20 years earlier, before Jacob arrived in Padan Aram. When he had his dream, and he saw the Lord descend from heaven to earth by means of a ladder to stand beside him and to promise to him, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 28 and verse 15. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That means the whole time of Jacob's sojourn with his uncle, In this other land, God was with him because God had promised to be with him the whole time, wherever he goes, until God brings him back. This is the context. This is a key theme of these few chapters, Genesis 28 and following. God has promised to be with Jacob and is with Jacob in all of the unfolding events of the following chapters. This is the larger context in which the conflict with Laban occurs in which the flight from Laban occurs, in which Laban's pursuit of Jacob occurs. God is with Jacob. We see also, though, more immediately in Genesis 31 and verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob didn't have to rely on his memory of an event 20 years ago to know that God was with him. God said to him immediately in this context, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. It is certain. It's repeated. God is with Jacob. And it's not just repeated in narration, as if it's something that readers of this story know, because the narrator tells us, but the character Jacob in the story doesn't know. God spoke to Jacob and repeated, reiterated, I am with you. And in fact, we see in Genesis 31 and verse 24, further evidence that God is with Jacob. As God appears to Laban in a dream by night, prior to Laban's confrontation of Jacob. And God says to Laban, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God is with Jacob, watching over him, caring for him, present with him for his good. If Jacob really believed this, how should he have acted? He says he believes this. He says he believes this. When he's speaking to his wives, in verse 5 he says, But the God of my father has been with me. And in verse 42 As he's speaking to Laban, he says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, 
etc., etc. He says he believes, and I'm sure to some extent he does. We're going to see that there's kind of a mixed response. He kind of doesn't respond entirely as he should, but doesn't respond entirely as he shouldn't. He kind of believes. But if Jacob believed consistently, thoroughly, and applied the truth that God is with him for his good to the particular situation that he's facing, how should he have acted? As it is so often with us, so it was with him in this instance. The way Jacob should have acted and the way he did act are two different things. We see that Jacob acted insecurely in running. He admits as much in verse 31 of chapter 31. Laban asks him, Why did you flee secretly and trick me? Did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourines and lyre. This is, sorry, I should have started at 26. Why did you trick me and drive my, drive, driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? This is Laban's question. And Jacob's answer in 31 is, Because I was afraid. Because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take my daughters, your daughters away from me by force. But if God was with him, why would he be afraid? If God was with him and said, Go, and I'm with you, I'm going to bring you back to your country. If God had promised this, Why did Jacob not stand on every promise of God's word? Why did God, why did Jacob not lean into the mighty fortress that is his God? Why did he act insecurely and run as if there was no one watching out for him but he himself? Jacob acted insecurely in this respect. And then Rachel's stealing of the household gods in chapter 31 and verse 19 may indicate fear on her part too. We read that Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Commentators are divided about why she might have stolen the household gods. Perhaps she was loyal to those gods and wanted to worship them in Jacob's homeland also. That's a possibility. Um, perhaps she wanted to get some kind of revenge on her dad for mistreating her all these years and she knew how important these household gods were to her father and so she takes them as an act of spite that's a possibility as well but we know from verse 27 of chapter 30 that Laban was into uh, practicing divination Laban said to Jacob, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that Yahweh has blessed me because of you. Laban was, was into uh, practices of acquiring knowledge about the future from gods other than Yahweh. He doesn't say, Yahweh revealed to me that he has blessed you because of me. He says, I've learned by divination. Presumably these household gods were involved 
in Laban's practice of divination. Thus, I think the most plausible motive that we could give to Rachel's stealing of the household gods is that she doesn't want him to divine their disappearance, their direction of travel, their whereabouts, so on and so forth. And so it may be an act of fear that she steals the household gods thinking that Laban will be at a disadvantage in terms of pursuing them and catching up with them and doing them harm. We know that Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen these household gods because chapter 31 and verse 32 tells us. But if there was this atmosphere of insecurity in the home where Jacob was afraid and he, he was communicating his fear either verbally to his wives or even non-verbally to his wives in just the body language and just the way he was bustling about and the stress. We know, we know, don't we? Even sometimes from non-verbal communication when someone is afraid. If you watch combat sports like boxing or MMA or anything like that, you know when one of the fighters is afraid of getting tagged by the other because he's not aggressive and pushing the pace. He's hanging back, he's dodging. His, he's not setting himself up to attack. He's always setting himself up to defend and defend and defend. We know when someone is afraid because they're sitting like this. You don't always have to say something to indicate that you're afraid. So if there is this atmosphere of fear in the home, as opposed to an atmosphere of trust in Yahweh, Rachel may have acted fearfully in stealing the household gods. And so Jacob is certainly not, whatever Rachel's motivations were or weren't, Jacob is certainly not himself trusting in Yahweh to protect him in his flight from Laban. And Jacob is certainly then, if he's not himself trusting in Yahweh, he's certainly not leading his family to trust in Yahweh. And so, he's acting insecurely in this matter. He's not acting as if God is with him wherever he goes. And as if God is going to bring him back to his homeland, as he had promised 20 years prior to do. He's not acting as if God is with him for his good, as he promises, even in the immediate context, in Genesis 31 and verse 3. God, Jacob is acting insecurely in running. What we see... What we see, though, is that Jacob is not a black and white character who's either all good or all bad. It's a battery. Jacob is not a black and white character who's all good or all bad, doing everything wrong or doing everything right. Rather, Jacob is something of a gray character. A little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Not doing everything exactly as he should, but not doing everything wrong. We see later in the chapter that Jacob acts securely, trusting in God, 
as he makes peace with Laban. In that whole incident, I should say, of making peace with Laban. Because the first thing that he does is actually confront Laban. When Laban finally catches up, somehow Jacob gets this spur of courage out of nowhere. Laban approaches and the first thing that he does is rebuke Jacob. And he says in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. So we don't know how many guys Jacob was traveling with. We don't know exactly what Jacob's setup was, but we don't know how many guys came with Laban either. But presumably, it's patently obvious that it is in Laban's power to do Jacob harm. Jacob doesn't dispute the point. Jacob wouldn't have fled if he could have defended himself uh, from Laban's attacks. And so, Jacob is actually in a vulnerable position. But... Perhaps it was Laban's admission that the God of Jacob's father had spoken to him the prior night. Or perhaps it was just Jacob recalling God's promises. You know, sometimes when you're in sin, and then you have that moment where you just come to clarity, and you just realize, I'm just doing something wrong. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, and you realize and you repent. For whatever reason... Jacob here seems all of a sudden to stop acting insecurely, stop acting in mistrust toward God, and to start acting in trust toward God. Jacob becomes angry and berates Laban, 31 and verse 36. We need to be careful, I think, not to read too much into this word berate. If you say, so-and-so berated someone else, or so-and-so berated me, or I berated someone else, we tend to attach a negative connotation to that. But listen, sometimes someone needs a rebuke. And sometimes, sometimes we need to be really firm. Maybe perhaps sometimes we need to berate someone, or someone needs to berate us. When we're carrying on in foolish ways, if a brother or a sister came along and berated us in the manner that Jacob berates Laban here, there would be nothing wrong with that. Where's Jacob's sin in what follows this statement that he berates Laban? All he does is point out his innocence and Laban's faults. There's no logical fallacy. There's no ad hominem attack beyond what is warranted. He points out Laban's character flaws, but he's not just throwing out personal insults. Or anything like this. He says, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. He simply says to Laban, listen, prove your case. You've come here as if I've done something wrong to you, but I haven't done anything wrong to you. There's nothing wrong with advocating for yourself. In a conflict. Advocating for the truth of the matter. In a conflict. Then he goes on and explains. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. In other words he took good care of Laban's flocks. 
Then this section, what was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Those things would customarily have been absorbed. Those losses would have customarily been absorbed by the owner of the flocks. Not the steward of the flocks. So Jacob has gone above and beyond. So again, he's just making his case. He's just stating a rational, reasonable case. Though he's evidently stating it forcefully. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. He explains all that he's done for Laban, and then he points out Laban's sin. And you have changed my wages ten times. There's also nothing wrong with confronting someone else about their sin in a conflict. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So he's trusting in God here. He's confronting someone that has the power to do him harm about their wrongness and about his rightness. He's advocating for himself. He's confronting another person about their sin. And he's doing so in a manifestly reasonable way. Laban is free to point out his offense, to point out his sin, to bring the stolen goods before him and set it in the middle of both parties so that the dispute can be arbitrated. (coughs) What Jacob says here is very reasonable. And there's actually nothing wrong with this situation. His security that God is with him That God is caring for him. He's come to repentance somehow. Probably because of Laban's admission that the Lord had spoken to him the prior night. Because Jacob alludes to that here at the end of verse 42. But somehow Jacob has come to repentance. And now he's acting as if God really is with him. He's willing to have the conversation that he should have had with Laban before he left. So he has it now. And he confronts Laban. Now listen to Laban's response. The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. So after you engage with someone very reasonably, you muster up the courage to talk to them about the sin that is theirs and the wrong that they have committed against you. And you put it out there that they may repent of it, that they may turn of it. And that there might be an actual meaningful reconciliation between you two as opposed to just sweeping it under the rug. The person responds like this. The gall of Laban here. You realize what he's saying? Those women, your wives, they're my daughters. And the children that they've born to you, they're mine. And all the flocks... What flocks, the striped, the speckled, the spotted, that Laban agreed to give Jacob as his wages, that God had caused to be born to the flock. Jacob, Laban says, they're mine. All that you see is mine. So Laban is not listening at all. Zero. There is no reasonableness 
on Laban's part. Laban doesn't cool off and say, you know what, you're right. I realize this, the last 20 years have been not what we would have wished them to be. There's been a lot of tension between us. I'm sorry, let's let it go. Let's get reconciled here. You're going home to your homeland. Let me kiss my daughters goodbye. Let me, let me kiss my grandkids goodbye. I'm sorry. Let's work this out. Not at all. After all that Laban, after all that Jacob has said, Laban's response is, everything is mine. The daughters are mine. The children are mine. He basically says, he basically reiterates what he said earlier, that uh, Jacob was in the wrong to leave. But then he says in verse 44, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. What? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So he's basically like, Jacob points out very reasonably, very rationally, though very forcefully, Laban, you have mistreated me for 20 years. I'm leaving because I don't trust you. You are a sinful man. You have sinned against me. And I'm leaving because of that. What is my sin? If I am at, if I am at fault, speak to me. Show me where I'm at sin. But it's not me that's at sin. in sin. It's you. And Laban responds, no. I'm not in sin. You're in sin. Now let's put this behind us. <laughs> Alright, so again, again, right? We would have the response, a different kind of response. We would likely at this point probably lash out. Most of us. You know, did you not hear me, Laban? Were you not even listening to what I just told you? I'm not making any covenant with you. But Jacob responds in a godly way here in this instance. According to Though it's anachronistic to say that he was obeying Romans 12.18. According to the prescription of Romans 12.18. As much as it depends on you. Live at peace with one another. Jacob's not going to let this remain outstanding. If Laban's willing to come to some terms of peace. Jacob's willing to go as far as Laban's willing to go. And so, look at his response in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He didn't even respond. He let Laban have the last word. What does an insecure person always try to do? Have the last word. Jacob lets Laban have the last word here. He just takes a stone and sets it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. That's a covenant-establishing ritual, to eat together uh, according to the covenant that you've made. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. Listen, but Jacob called it Galid. This shows that Jacob is not merely just kowtowing to Laban's demands because he's again afraid that Laban has responded harshly and Laban has now been cowed into a corner. 
Jacob calls it by the language of his people, of his God. It's a subtle thing, but it's an important thing, is that Laban is speaking a foreign language here, so to speak. No doubt, no doubt Jacob spoke it too by this time. But Jacob is naming this by the God, or pardon me, by the language of Abraham and Abraham's family. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. So again, Laban is like, This covenant that we're making protects me from anything you might do to me. Laban is still just fo- totally focused on himself. Laban doesn't say, if I cross this to do you harm, then God will see. He's still just focused on the possibility of Jacob doing something wrong to him. But Jacob, uh, Laban does go on to acknowledge that the terms are that Jacob will not pass over to do Laban harm and Laban will not pass over to do Jacob harm but the focus of Laban is very much still upon the potentiality for Jacob to transgress this covenant nevertheless Jacob we read at the end of verse 53 swears by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. There they ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This reconciliation leaves something to be desired. Let's be honest. It's not as if now Laban and Jacob are best buddies. But the point that we need to see here is that Jacob was willing to make peace as far as he could with Laban that he was not he was no longer acting insecurely by the end of this passage he was trusting that God really was with him and he was willing to make peace with Laban what would it look like for you to act like God really is with you in conflict the way that by the end of this passage Jacob acted like God really was with him in conflict what would it look like practically speaking for you to act like God really is with you in conflict because he is we recall again Genesis 28 I keep harping on this because this is such a major theme of this section of Genesis. This is the context in which all of it happens. God had promised to be with Jacob for his good. He had descended that ladder to be by Jacob's side and to promise to be with him and never to leave him until he had accomplished all his purposes for him. And as I've said before, Jesus alludes to that in John 1.51. And he says that he's the ladder by which heaven meets earth 
He is the means by which God comes to us for our good. God in Christ is with us as He was with Jacob for our good. Then, of course, there's Matthew chapter 28, which we typically think of in the context of what we should be doing, the Great Commission. But there's also a wonderful promise at the end of Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of the age. That means God, Jesus wasn't just speaking to His disciples that were in front of Him. Because we're still in the same age. Jesus is promising to be with His people always to the end of the age. And Hebrews chapter 13 takes those wonderful words that were spoken so many times in the Old Testament and applies them to us. New new covenant believers. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, that's not just for Joshua going into the promised land. Be strong and of good courage. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's for you. Brothers, sisters, God says to you, Christian, in Christ Jesus, born again, united to Him by faith, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? God has come to us, humanity, in Christ Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. Which is what the spotlessness of the lambs in the Old Testament prefigured and foreshadowed. You couldn't bring a lamb with a blemish. A physical blemish. Because then it wouldn't represent the lamb that is without moral blemish. You had to bring a lamb with no physical blemish. Because those lambs were trying to teach us something about the lamb with no moral blemish. And Jesus, that spotless lamb with no moral blemish, was sheared and his wool made into a garment of pure white, which you, Christian, are clothed in. And that spotless lamb, like a sheep, was led to is led to its shearers, was silent as he was led to Golgotha, where he died in the place of you, Christian, for your specific sins, for everything wrong that you have ever done and will do, Christian. And that happened thousands of years ago before you were born, because God loved you with an everlasting love. 
And in due time, God by His Spirit drew you to faith in that Savior. You trusted in Him. We're united to Him by faith. And God gave you His Spirit to be with you. And He will be with you even to the end of the age. God will never leave you nor forsake you. What you read in the pages of Scripture is not for someone else if you are in Christ Jesus. Those things... Matthew 28, I am with you to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, that is for you. So what would it, like, what would it look like then for you to engage in conflict as if those things are true? Do you have to be insecure? Do you have to go through this life fearful, hesitating like... The fighter that I mentioned earlier, who's always hanging back, dodging, scared to wade in and throw some punches because he's afraid of getting tagged. Do you always have to be like that in your life? Or can you try to obey God's word and do the things that God told you to do? Like, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with others. Could you do that with courage? Could you do that with bravery? Because you know that God is with you as you have a hard conversation. Could you speak up instead of withdrawing? Because you know that God is with you as you speak up. Could you advocate for yourself and confront someone else about their sin? Because you know that God is with you as you do that. Could you admit that you are wrong and that the other person is right instead of defending yourself all the time? Because you know that God is with you as you do that. Could you let someone else have the last word instead of feeling like you got to get it in there? Because you know that God is with you in that conversation. Christian, If you really trusted that God is with you in all circumstances of life for your good, you would engage in conflict differently. You wouldn't be acting so much like Jacob in the first half of chapter 31 of Genesis. You'd be acting a lot more like Jacob in the last half of Genesis 31. It's hard, it's challenging, it may cost us something. Reconciliation is difficult. And in fact, we have actually no promise from God that He's going to bring us back to our homeland. And so sometimes pursuing reconciliation may actually lead to physical harm. We have to be careful and wise, and you're not responsible to... Put yourself in a abusive situation over and over again, or something like that. We can use some judgment and so on and so forth. I'm not, I'm not trying to press the imperatives uh, 
as if they meant that necessarily. But often we just simply lack the courage to do the things we should do and to have the conversations that we should have. And I think sometimes we do have to acknowledge there is some physical risk in having certain conversations. But still, as Christians, we ought to do that. And sometimes we suffer emotional harm from trying. Sometimes we might even suffer some physical harm from trying. But if we believe that God is really with us, it's worth trying. Because reconciliation is what God in Christ is up to in this world. Reconciliation. That's where it's all going. Many of you have heard of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in South America and who was martyred. What less people know is that he was killed by a spear while he was wearing a gun on his hip that he never fired. He never even drew it. And apparently he had the time and so on and so forth from reconstructions of the incident. Listen, that guy chose not to draw the gun. You know why? Because he was all about reconciliation. The reconciliation of those people to God. The possibility that they, having been reconciled to God, might come into relationship not only with God, but with Him. And so his motive was in defense and insecurity the whole time. His motivation was pursuing that reconciliation with a gospel confidence and a gospel boldness. Would we be people like Jim Elliot, like Jacob at the last half of Genesis 31, like those envisioned in Romans 12, 18, who go out with gospel courage and gospel confidence, seeking reconciliation between men and God and between men and us? Would we be people that go out with gospel courage, seeking as much as it depends on us to live at peace with others, as we also implore them to be at peace with God?